and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Over the past month, Belarus has been increasingly in the spotlight with the announcement of the Wagner Group's relocation to the country following its failed mutiny in Russia at the end of June. While it remains to be seen exactly what role Wagner forces will have in Belarus going forward, their presence raises many questions about how Wagner will interact with Belarusian President Lukashenko's regime and the relationship between Minsk and Moscow. Wagner's move to Belarus, of course, comes within a broader context of closer ties between the two countries, including a renewed push for integration under the Union State Framework and notable moves such as the announcement about the deployment of Russian nuclear weapons to Belarus. At the same time, the legacy of mass protests in Belarus following stolen elections in 2020 continues to exert a powerful influence as significant questions remain about the stability of the Lukashenko regime, despite its increasingly repressive measures. So to discuss all of this and more, we're really pleased to have back to the podcast, Brian Whitmore, and to welcome Rihor Astapinia. Thank you both for joining. Thanks for having us. Um, quick bio for our listeners. Uh, Brian is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council in Washington, D.C., as well as a Russia and Eurasia specialist and assistant professor of practice at the University of Texas at Arlington. I will note he is also the author of the Power Vertical blog and host of the Power Vertical podcast, both of which focus on Russian affairs. So if you haven't checked those out, you should. And Rehor is an Academy Associate and Director of the Belarus Initiative in the Russia and Eurasia Program at the Chatham House. He focuses on Belarusian domestic politics and foreign policy. Okay, so maybe let's start with a scene setter. And Brian, maybe I'll start with you just to set the stage in terms of what's the state of play. Uh, What do we know about what Wagner is doing in Belarus And what do we make of recent news that Wagner forces are heading towards the border near Poland um, and perhaps looking at the Savolki cap, which, sorry, the Savolki gap, which is being reported on CNN this morning? Kind of how how are you understanding where we are at the moment? Well, thanks, Andrea. And the first thing I'll say, I preface all my remarks with, I, I think we all need to have a lot of epistemological modesty at this point, because we just don't have the visibility into into things that we become accustomed to. That said, we know there are somewhere between three and 4,000 Wagner troops in Belarus. That number is supposed to go up to eight to eight or maybe 10,000 um, going forward. But again, we, we we don't know the exact numbers. We know what's being reported by Russian and Belarusian sources. Um, you can take those, uh, you know, you, sometimes you have to take those sources with a, with a, with a grain of, of, of salt. Um, the issue of the threats against Poland, I, I'm looking at this kind of two ways. My first instinct on this is it's just a PSYOP. Uh, the Kremlin is well aware um, just like just like moving the, the the tactical nukes into Belarus, which I saw absolutely no really strategic or tactical advantage to doing that, um, but it has a psyop advantage. Every time they say nuke, we freak out. Um, Andrea, I know that, uh, Jim, I think you you see every time anybody in in Moscow or Minsk says nuke, everybody in Washington jumps under their desks, um, and they know that, right? They know that. 
Um, so they're playing a psyop. There are also fears here of the conflict metastasizing and spreading to a NATO country like Poland or Lithuania. They're aware of that. So uh, my first instinct when Lukashenko said this to Putin during their meeting is this is a carefully choreographed psyop to freak out the West. Um, now, that's one way, another way I'm looking at. And I'd be interested what Rihor has to say about this, because the, the, the degree that he focuses on Belarusian domestic politics to a greater degree than I do. But Lukashenko is not entirely happy with this situation. I mean, the, the having Wagner in Belarus kind of complicates things for him. And I'm wondering if, if this was an expression of his displeasure to Putin about the presence of Wagner in, in Belarus. Now, we know they're supposedly training Belarusian special forces. That's what that's that's the official line. But as far as that, like in, in terms of what we what we have visibility into, this is it right now. And we're we're speculating on top of these data points. Um, but at this point, it is speculation. So I see the threats against Poland as a psyop. I see it similar to moving the nukes into Belarus. I'm wondering about Lukashenko's attitude toward this, and I can get into that in in in, in a bit going forward because I, I have a couple of thoughts about that. But I have I largely have more more questions than answers at this point, and I think most of us should have more questions than answers and should have a lot of epistemological modesty at this point. Awesome. You know, I totally agree. There's just so much we don't know. But Rehor, do you want to pick up on that? Because I mean, I think that really is such an important question of what Lukashenko's incentive was. Was this something that he was, you know, forced to do by Putin to really give Putin the so-called off-ramp that people talk about? Or is there some is there some play that Lukashenko thinks he's going to be able to make here? Um, it, it, yeah. What, what do you what do you I, again I, without being able to get into the heads of either of these leaders, how have you understood Lukashenko's role in all of this? Yeah, thanks, Andrea. Probably I will start with some background information and actually the issue that Brian raised that we do not know a lot and the keys think that we do not know the details of the deal between Prigozhin and the Kremlin. For example, it seemed for many of us, I guess, so that Part of the deal is that actually Prigozhin wouldn't live in Russia and would live in Belarus, but in reality, he doesn't live in Belarus. And he seems to be uh, still spending a lot of time in Russia. And Including as, meeting with the African leaders at the yeah. Afri Russia yeah. African summit. Yeah. Yeah. True, so still true. meeting with heads of state. Yes. Yeah. So, and. Uh, and as for the Lukashenko's attitude, I think for, for the regime, it means having Wagner troops, Wagner fighters in Belarus is a double-edged sword. And on the one hand, Lukashenko was kind of happy to be useful for this deal because it increased his prestige in Russia. Russia proposed some gas discounts for Lukashenko, etc. So the economy will be growing and it, it looks fine. And actually, Russian media spent a lot of time praising Lukashenko as a political genius who saved Russia, etc. So it, it looks great. But on the other hand, well, Lukashenko understands that Prigozhin's troops, his soldiers, they actually live according to Prigozhin's rules. <laughs> and they are not actually obliged to follow Lukashenko's soldiers, etc. So, and if they start playing their own game, for example, like provocations near the Poland border or Lithuania border, how should Lukashenko react? And uh, that's a huge question for him. 
and therefore he is interested in getting the Wagner groups Wagner group outside of Belarus as soon as possible. And uh, until then, he just needs to smile and contain possible issues and possible problems. Well, but thank you all very much. That was that was helpful. I uh, I think that's one thing that hasn't been covered very well uh, was at the very very beginning of this whole. Uh, mutiny episode is why did Lukashenko do do what he did? Why did he, you know, and so I'm glad you all delved into that a little bit. I could only see his arms tied behind his back and halfway out a window until he said, okay, okay, I'll take the Wagner troops and Pergozin and they, you know, brought him back in the room, brought him back into the room. Um, but my question is, pause there really quick because I see Brian wants something to add there because there is the other side of that, Brian. But I, jump in there and then then we'll come. Yeah, I didn't want to cut you off. Uh, cut you off, but I mean, I think I mean there have been reports that Lukashenko wasn't even the first person Putin went to. Um, now these are all unconfirmed, but I've heard that that in Rihar, I'd be interested if you heard this as well. That Putin first went to uh, Tokayev in in Kazakhstan for help with this. But what I think happened here is that Lukashenko saw an opportunity to, he's always playing many angles. I mean, the guy is wily, right? He comes across as this buffoon, but he is very, very wily. He's very cunning. And I think for the, since 2020, the Russia has been engaging in what I call a soft annexation of Belarus, and Lukashenko has been pretty powerless to stop it because he's completely dependent on Putin since August of 2020. And he saw two things here. He saw one, a chance to please the boss. I mean, I look at this like a like a like a like a mafia syndicate, right? And, and, and right, Lukashenko right. is at best an underboss. And he saw a chance to please the boss, but he also saw a chance to leverage this. And potentially reverse the power dynamic with Russia that had been in place since 2020. Um, so I think I think we're seeing both of these things. But like Rihor points out, these Wagner troops on Belarusian soil are indeed a double-edged sword. They play by Prigozhin's rules, not Lukashenko's. That complicates matters. And I think I think Lukashenko is likely feeling very, very, very conflicted about this at the moment. But I, I fully subscribe, Brian, to that n- narrative. I mean, I guess the way I've always understood Lukashenko is he like lives within this little band in terms of cozying up to the West, mm. getting closer to Russia. And anytime he gets too close to one side or the other, he's always looking for an opportunity to kind of correct course a little bit. And I do, I mean, I I, I can't, I don't know exactly what he said when he was just in St. Petersburg with, with Putin, but I feel like there was kind of a thinly veiled threat a little bit, kind of reminding Putin that he now has this force. And oh, Mm -hmm. by the way, these Wagner fighters are now closer to Moscow than they ever were before when they were down on the southern border. So there is a little bit of a power play, which again, like I fully agree with the double-edged sword. It can backfire horribly for Lukashenko, but it does seem like it, it, it does give Lukashenko a little bit more leverage with Putin that he has been losing over the, at least, you know, especially since the end. Yeah. And then there's the, the if, if this weren't complicated enough, there have been persistent reports that Lukashenko is in poor health. Um, he certainly doesn't look good. Now, again, we don't know. We haven't seen his medical records, um, but there are rumors popping out of Belarus about this. And that raises the issue of succession. Um, now, does Russia have the bandwidth to control a succession struggle in Belarus? 
Could they stage manage that? Could they choreograph that? I don't know. Um, but in the event of a loss in Ukraine, a decline in Moscow's ability to project power, we could be seeing a very interesting situation going forward in Belarus. Certainly a, a succession could suit Moscow. Um, they could get their person in, you know, in charge and then basically get what they want out of Belarus because Lukashenko isn't giving them everything they want. Um, he's slow walking the union state. Um, he, he, he's now much more open to allowing Russian military troops and hardware to be permanently stationed on Belarusian soil than he had in the past. Um, but they, they would love to get a succession with a full on client that's less problematic and more obedient. Um, but could they control that transition? I have no earthly idea. I guess another factor too is that the uh, there's a I'm not sure I'm not sure what has happened, uh, and maybe you all can shed some light on the domestic scene in Belarus. And if there is a sudden death at the top and not a clear succession, uh, uh, as well as Putin beginning to uh, pull strings, whether there might be not be an uprising of some type among. Uh, unless this has been totally repressed now and they're no longer around. But as I remember in the past, they were pretty vocal uh, and uh, and had and had some uh, a pretty large following. I just don't know where that is anymore. What do you think in terms of the domestic scene uh, in Belarus? Would there be much of a peep these days or will we see something like we saw a few years ago? Rehor, you want to jump on that? Yeah, one? I think that's Rehor. Yeah. yeah, I think that if we imagine succession in Belarus or sudden Lukashenko's death. Well, it's actually very difficult to imagine because he runs the country for the 29 years already. So that's why people like get used to that. But if we imagine that, I think the key issue will be who will be willing to actually to run the country after him because we have different ways of successions, different ideas of successions. One thing is that actually the eldest son of Lukashenko. So in a way, it makes sense. It's monarchy, so it's consolidated dictatorship. And actually, in a way, it gives some uh, opportunity to show Russians that actually Belarus would like to be run by itself because it's monarchy, it makes sense. So this is why it creates at least some legitimacy, let's say, in a way for, for for the political system inside the country. Uh, also, we can imagine that Russian-controlled succession, that actually they will pick up someone and uh, give this person uh, opportunity to run. And in, as an opportunity, I mean, like, for example, discounts for gas and oil, and with that, you actually can run the country because everything is working. Even now, Belarusian economy is growing. Though many European economies have economic difficulties at the moment, and Belarusian economy is growing despite the, all the sanctions introduced by the West, despite the war, etc. So that's why it's the second way of succession. And the third way is that actually there will be some fight, internal fight, and uh, there will be some manifestations. But at the moment, it's very difficult to imagine them. Uh, because the democratic movement has been under repression for the last three years. And fr frankly speaking, I just do not see the way how it's possible to organize new protests at the moment. Yeah. 
Rehor, can you say a little bit about the state of the opposition? And and I mean, obviously, it, I mean, either, I mean, I understand that how much repression has continued to increase inside the country with the crackdown on any remaining opposition inside the country, but now with Tikhonovskaya outside the country, how much resonance does she, does she have and her movement have inside Belarus? And is it actually... Um, does it have traction? Would it be seen as a viable alternative, especially in the case where there was maybe turmoil around succession? Unfortunately, for many people who are outside the country, that they will be not be able to return to the country. And, uh, and if we imagine any kind of protests, manifestations, etc., they should be organized and should be led by people who are inside. And, and at the same time, we should understand that, well, Lukashenko is not popular. I mean, like, he still can sell some of his stability, some of his charisma to the Belarus society. But in general, he's electorally weak. And yep. uh, many people would like to get rid of him. So I think that is why we shouldn't be overthinking some alternatives that already exist. Because actually, if things change, inside the country, and if Lukashenko disappears somehow, so we will see a completely new wave of political leaders whom we do not know, and whom we didn't know, as we didn't know Tsikhanovska before 2020. And that new wave will decide the future of the country. Yeah, I would would also add, I mean, even before the war, we were seeing uh, public opinion polling, as it were, the, the limited public opinion polling that's been done in Belarus. Um, some has been been done by Chatham House. Some's been some's been done by some Polish institutes. But we're seeing a very clear trend, and that is the the rise in pro Western sentiments in Belarus and the decline in pro Russian sentiments. Um, this is manifesting itself in a lot of different ways. When asked to name the historical period in Belarus that Belarusians would like to draw inspiration from, the periods in which it was dominated by Moscow are on the bottom of the list. At the top of the list is the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, followed by the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, the Belarusian Repu- short-lived Belarusian Republic of 1918 to 1921. These things all came higher um, and had a overwhelming majority as compared to the Soviet Union and um, and, and the Russian Empire. So we began to see this um, this this kind of pro-Western movement on, on, on in the population. Is that sustainable? I haven't seen polling in a long time. Um, could that be turned into a viable protest movement? I mean, a succession is going to, I think, unleash some turmoil. I don't think Belarusian civil society is just going to sit by and, and, and let this let this happen according to the Kremlin's designs or even Lukashenko's designs. Um, Lukashenko clearly wants to pass the torch to his son, Victor. Right. Um, that's clearly what he, he he wants to do, that he's been trying to set things up to do for a while. And rumor has it that Viktor Lukashenko is actually quite um, amenable to Moscow. So maybe that could be something where they would be on the same page. I mean, I, I, again, I, I would defer to Rehor on all things Belarusian domestic politics at this point. But that's 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 how I that that dynamic I see is is, is something to really keep an eye on. right now. How old is Victor? How old is Victor? Um, He's around 50 years old. Yeah, I can. Around 50. Okay. Jim. Um, could I ask uh, just along those lines, uh, you were talking about civil society isn't going to uh, sit around 
uh, if there's a succession uh, turmoil and also the how high up uh, the uh, old days were in terms of uh, in terms of Belarusians looking on the good old days. It certainly wasn't the Soviet days. So when you think about that, I always think about the uh, Belarusian army and the soldier that's in the Belarusian army uh, who might have some of the same sentiments a bit. I probably may may uh, may be hidden away a bit better, but. Uh, if the Belarusian military was suddenly told, okay, you're going to follow your Wagner colleagues there and go into uh, Western Ukraine, um, I can't imagine really uh, the t- common Belarusian soldier, much less uh, the bosses in the, in the Belarusian military, really being attracted to that. I mean, yep. my opinion was that the Belarusian soldier and the military bosses were very reluctant to get involved in anything dealing with yeah. this war. Yeah. And when it looked like they were going to get sucked into some kind of peacekeeping role or something that they were like, no, 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 no. So I'm, that's just my impression. Can you guys give us an idea on what their military reaction would be, not just in terms of being asked to invade Ukraine, but also yeah. if they were called out on the streets uh, to suppress uh, this um, civil society, if there was some kind of demonstration during a succession time. I mean, in terms of Ukraine, I mean, there were reports very early in the war that you, that Belarusian officers had warned that, 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 that they couldn't really trust their own troops if they were sent into Ukraine. And there were actual fears that they would flip over to the Ukrainian side. Right. Um, right. And I think this is one of the reasons. Now, these, again, were unconfirmed reports, but they were out there. This is may could be, could be one of the reasons we never saw Belarus. Now, Belarus's army is very small, very poorly trained. Um, it, it it actually makes the Russian army look good right now, which is kind of saying something. But that said, I mean, there the the the, the Putin was desperate for manpower, and Belarus was 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 never activated here. And I think there's a reason for that. I think the officers basically said, "You really can't trust the enlisted men to 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 not." To not flip there, the only Belarusians fighting in Ukraine right now are fighting on the Ukrainian side. Um, and I think that speaks volumes. A lot of these telegram channels were organized by ex-military and ex, uh, ex-security services people. So the, the security services and the military are separate from society in many ways, but they're also part of society and they also reflect general trends in society. And the general trends in society in, in Belarus are not just nos- like not nostalgia for the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, but looking to that period for inspiration, but you're seeing clear signs that like we do not want to be under under Russian control. We feel like in the uh, Putin's personal rating is going down or was going down the last time I saw polling in Belarus. And I don't think these trends have gone away as the result of the war. In fact, I think they've been accelerated by what's a very unpopular war in Belarus. So I think there's a the the, the idea of the, the of, of Belarusian troops going to Ukraine is, is is a very fraught question. In terms of repressing locally repressing any uprisings, I think that is more likely, although again, you you're right, Jim, these attitudes in society are going to they're going to be they're going to be manifest as well in 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 the armed forces. I'd, I'd be interested in hearing Rehor on this though. Well, I, I absolutely agree that actually it's very difficult to imagine Belarus's army going to Ukraine, and there are plenty of reasons for that. Well, it's the probably we should start from the point that not so many Belarusian soldiers I know how to shoot actually, because <laughs> they, because Belarusian army was always underinvested. It's actually Belarus spends like around one percent on its military, and actually 
except special operations forces. Belarusian army, in a way, doesn't exist. Uh, also, there is actually an issue of popularity of the war inside the society, inside the military. And actually, Belarusian army trained a lot with the Russian soldiers before and trains still then, uh, still now. And actually, many of these Russian soldiers, they no longer live uh, because it was airborne fighters who actually died during the first months of the war. So that's why I think that Belarusian soldiers clearly understand what does it mean to actually to participate in the war. And as for this suppressing the protests, I think, well, it's still a huge question how these protests will happen, how they will look like, who will lead them, etc. And based on that, we can think whether the military will suppress that or it will, in a way, help this protest. But what we seen from the uh, from from 2020 and what we are seeing now, what we saw before, that actually, well, they they still have this inertia to follow the mainstream. And if the mainstream will be is just well, let's have a new rule of the country, they will support that. But if they see that that mainstream is that actually, well, let's raise Russian flag in Minsk, they will probably support that. And that's the problem that actually many of them think that, well, we should just support the status quo and support the inertia. So as, as we're talking, I was just thinking about, I mean, this in many ways then is a big win though from the Kremlin's perspective, presumably, or it, it again, lots of questions and we don't know how exactly it will play out and we don't know the agreement between Putin and Wagner. But as you guys were talking and you know, I mean, now Putin does have a force um, and these uh, kind of trained fighters on the ground to help manage succession. It is presu like, presumably they could uh, execute other information operations to try to overcome some of the loss of Russian uh, favorability inside Belarus. And the other thing that it seems it does is it has helped Putin now restore this kind of plausible deniability with the Wagner fighters. Like, so I guess what I'm thinking about, and I want you, I want to get your reactions is, so what if, you know, Wagner goes to the border of Poland and starts probing for vulnerabilities to send more migrants through? Or what if Wagner fighters do some sort of hybrid kind of operation into Lithuanian or Polish territory? It's now incredibly easy for Putin to say, well, I, you know, I kick these guys out of my country. I have no control over them. This is not a Russia problem then how, how does the West respond to something mm. like that? I don't know. I, it, it's not a formulated question. It's more just kind of throwing this out because I was thinking about it as you guys were talking and and just to hear how you respond to that. Well, yeah, Andrea, you, Andre, you hit on something I've been thinking about since this all started. Whose pawn is Wagner anyway? So right? bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> is it Putin's pawn? And is this a Trojan horse in Belarus that can do all sorts of things? In terms I'm not of a conspiracy theory person, <laughs> but my mind does like spin like about what's going on behind the scenes. Well, yeah. a very wise analyst of Russian politics once said to me that there is never a question in, in, in this part of the world if there is a conspiracy. The question is, which conspiracy is succeeding? That's the question to ask. And again, it raises the question, whose pawn is Wagner? Now, Andrea, you raise a very plausible 
scenario here that Wagner, this is reestablishes plausible deniability and they can be used in Belarus to do all sorts of things to keep control of Belarus, number one, to harass Ukraine from the north, number two. I don't think 3,000 or 4,000 Wagner troops are going to take Kiev, but they but they can certainly make trouble in nor- in, in, in the north of Ukraine there. Um, could they play games with NATO, with Putin having plausible deniability? That, that, that's deniability. That's one possibility. Or are they now Lukashenko's pawn? And is Lukashenko going to be able to play with Wagner? And then Wagner has its own agency, right? It has its, it has its as it's shown us, um, and again, this is going to be a frustrating podcast to listen to maybe because we don't have a lot of, and I think we have to be really, really careful about this. We used to have a lot of visibility and things have gotten very, very opaque. This is a conversation that Russia and Belarus, watchers of this part of the world, Russia and the former Soviet space are having over and over and over again is how much, how, how opaque this has all gotten. Um, now the people that know don't talk and the people that talk don't know. Um, now we're kind of back to our grandfather's Kremlinology of looking at the bulldogs fighting under the carpet and trying to piece together data points. Um, it's a different kind of Kremlinology than I've been accustomed to to to, to engaging in, uh, in in recent decades. I see uh, Rihor wanted to jump in here and, and, and pick up on one of these points. I'll, I'll stop talking now. Well, I think that actually it's, it's a huge question. Uh, how should the West react and how Lukashenko will react to that? Uh, because if Wagner starts its own game against, like, let's say, Poland or Lithuania, so in a way, Lukashenko will need somehow to react to that. But it's a huge question is whether he's able to escalate his relations with, with Wagner Group. And the other question is what the West should do and what the West can do. Actually, the West has introduced almost all of its economic sanctions against Belarus at the moment. And uh, so that is why it's very difficult to do anything about Belarus at the moment. It's actually, you can't offer anything, you can't intimidate Lukashenko. So uh, that is why the West seems to be out of the options. Well, I mean, I think Poland and and, and Lithuania have fortified their borders. I I think that they are ready or yeah, anything yeah. that Wagner might try. I still think this is a psyop. I really do. I, I just you I know think that it's, Wagner lost all their access to heavy weapons, right? So they're lost, not yeah. like a, yeah, it's not like a, a major fighting force. I guess what I worry about mostly is more of the hybrid stuff. Right. Disruption. Right. I mean, Poland has an election coming up. I don't know how Russia yeah. might or may not try to put its finger on the scale and create some instability surrounding the election. I mean, it it does seem like this creates a lot of new potential scenarios for malign influence. But again, like it's, it it gets increasingly difficult to know if it's coming from the Kremlin and then, and then how, how the West responds, because, you know, who do we target with repercussions? And that's what I'm thinking about. No, you go ahead. I mean, it's coming from Belarusian territory, so Belarus is going to bear responsibility for some for that, and I think there are going to be costs there. And it's a Russian entity operating from Belarusian territory, so Russia will will will, will also be held responsible. Now, the question Rihor raises is like, how much more can we dial up the sanctions right now? And there's there isn't there isn't a lot of room, but there's room. Um, there's 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 still some room. There's still some things we can do. Um, I think. I huh? think. Go ahead. No, you go. 
No, no, I'm, I, I'm, I'm fine. Um, I was just saying that I think part of the scenario too is this is a diversion uh, that that is helpful to Russia in terms of the fighting uh, in the east. If they're able to uh, to really pose a threat, I mean, it's hard to imagine Belarus and Wagner being a big threat. But if they're able to divert some Ukraine forces and energy and attention to the west, uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing in terms of the east. Uh, it's stretching the, the Ukraine out a little bit. So if they do, instead of Poland, um, instead they really begin to, to push and to um, provoke along the border with Ukraine, uh, th that might be of more help to Russia than anything else. Yeah, no, it could provide a distraction. I mean, that's, that's all I think it can provide, uh, yeah. quite frankly. And I expect that more than some move into Poland. I, I just I, I just think that is such that is just so insane. Um it's a suicide mission. Um and with with I don't see very little tangible benefits um other than being an annoyance to the West, which is again why from the very start I saw all this Poland talk as a as a big psyop. And I was worried that it was going to work. Um, just like the nuke thing always works, right? Because there are persistent fears. The, the key variable in this war right now is whether the level of Western support for Ukraine will continue. Right. And I think if it does, Ukraine wins, right? I think that's that that that's that it's just a matter of time. Um, if it doesn't, then we're in a different world. And I think that is Putin's play right now. Um, Putin's whole play right now is hoping, looking to the 2024 elections in the U.S. and hoping there's a change that would change policy, hoping that Europe is going to tire of this and change policy. And if that, ha that's Putin's whole play now. And, every, and a lot of these things he's doing, whether it's moving, you know, moving tactical nukes into Belarus, which has no strategic or tactical uh, utility, or this, this crazy idea of Wagner attacking Poland, that as we all know, is going to resonate here in Washington. It's there is a there is a faction of our foreign policy establishment that is very very worried about the conflict metastasizing that are and escalating, and 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 so you're you're they're 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 hoping to throw as much out here and see what sticks to to change the dynamic of Western support. I think that's what this is all about. Um, the message to Washington and all Western capitals, stay the course. This is a PSYOP. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think then the, the question that I hear so often, um, not directed at me, but in other discussions is kind of what the West can do vis-a-vis -vis Belarus. And I think, you know, there's lots of organizations, NED, IRI, NDI, all, you know, that are all very interested in supporting democratic development in Ukraine and other things. That, but I think a lot of times um, these organizations kind of struggle to know where they can have the biggest bang for their buck and that where they can have the most impact. And I wonder, like for to both of you who have looked at these countries for a while, like what should the Western uh, position be on Belarus? Are, what are the things that you think either that we need more of, things that are underway that we need more of, or things that you think we're just not doing? Well, actually, I wrote a paper recently on the Western policy towards Belarus, so you can find it and download it at Chatham House website. Uh, I think that there are many things that should be done, but the first thing is that we should start with is that actually 
Belarus should become a more prioritized country than it is at the moment, because with the current level of financial, diplomatic, political resources, it's very difficult to to achieve anything and to achieve any meaningful change within Belarus, just because, well, for the Lukashenko and for the Putin's regime, it's just more important and they have more resources. And when we think about sanctions, it's definitely it should be introduced. But at the same time, what we are seeing at the moment, that actually the Russian economy is disconnecting from the West and it's doing it itself. And uh, they're doing it on purpose. And actually not so many sanctions that can be introduced. And that is why there is still a need to think what are our other options. And should we think about diplomacy, about negotiations? It's very difficult at the moment because actually, just because actually Lukashenko is not afraid of the West. And that is why the West should somehow frighten and intimidate Lukashenko. And, and well, yeah, and we still have to continue the support for the democratic forces, for the civil society, for independent media. There is a huge need for that because actually repression that took place in Belarus and still taking place, well, they are so huge that it, it's very difficult to, to survive and to continue operating. Moreover, well, we, let's be very realistic. It's not going to, Belarus is not going to change over the next few years. And what is important is just to be ready for the chance for a window of opportunity. And the question is that actually, if we do not, if we are not going to prepare for that, it will not happen at all. And that is why what is really crucial at the moment is just to invest in the independent media, civil society, that it will be able to achieve democratization of the country. And I would I would echo like, that. You uh, heard I'm sorry. Before, is a, a lot of that, I mean, is it also, I mean, um, I know a lot of, there's been what, 3 million or something Russians who have left Russia. And my sense is that there's also been a fairly significant exodus of a lot of the more kind of liberal leaning opposition inside Belarus. So are a lot of the people that Western organizations would fund and support outside of the country, and it's just a matter of enabling them to continue to do their work from outside Belarus, or are there also opportunities uh, to support uh, voices and actors on the ground as well? Or is that has that space shut too significantly? Well, unfortunately, it's very difficult to fund anyone inside the country at the moment. And that is why it's about supporting the immigration infrastructure. And that actually poses a great, huge question. How long should the West support it? Uh, because it's okay to support people during the repressions, but when repressions continue and people do not have access to their own country and they live outside the country all the time, in a few years, donors ask themselves a question whether we should continue doing that and the truth is that well they should and uh, because without that without preparing for the next political crisis i really doubt that any kind of democratization or belarus reorientation from the from russia to the west can happen at all yeah, I, I mean, I would add engaging the diaspora, I think, is is really important. There is a very, very large Belarusian community that has relocated to Lithuania. Um, the last time I was in Vilnius, I, I, I met with a, a bunch of them. And this is I mean, Lithuania is a small country and this is putting a strain on their on their social system. And I think the, the one thing the West can do is these these frontline countries like 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 Lithuania and Poland that are taking a lot of Belarusian 
refugees um, should should be given the support to, to 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 take care of them, but also engage these these, these diaspora communities in, in in terms of the as as part of this whole play for the future of Belarus, because I think the the West needs to double down on engaging civil society on the sanctions. I'm I'm not sure we have dialed it up all the way, right? I have not been watching the i used to be keep a close eye on potash i haven't kept a close eye on potash in a little while but there still was some belarusian potash being like uh exported into western markets um sometimes through western ports now i i think that have that has all been shut down but i think and, and i the, you would have to to talk to somebody like josh rudolph or the that really kind of keeps a close eye on sanctions on this but i would tighten the sanctions regime so there are absolutely no there is there is no leakage at all um because i i am not i am not convinced we've we've dialed it all the way up there but our best belarus policy right now just like our best russia policy is a good ukraine policy i think winning in ukraine um and giving ukraine everything it needs to make sure it wins and not being afraid to say the word win um, because I, I I don't hear that word in Washington enough with regard to Ukraine. I hear the president say we're with the Ukrainians as long as it takes. I would like to add two words to that to win, right? Because of a, a, a Ukrainian victory uh, would basically have repercussions across the region. It would not be restricted to Ukraine. I, I wrote an article for Foreign Policy late last year about this that a Ukrainian victory could create a 1989 moment which would kind of diminish Moscow's ability to project power across its immediate neighborhood um, in Georgia, for example, in, 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 in Moldova, but I would argue even in Belarus. I think we, would, we could possibly see political change, positive political change in Belarus in the event of Ukrainian victory. So, I mean, first and foremost, I think our best Belarusian policy is a good Ukrainian policy, making sure Ukraine wins this war. A question for you guys on on the nukes that are in Belarus. Uh, I know that um, we, we hear a little bit about that on here on the outside, but but where are they? Uh, where are they? And um, and and how is this movement of Russian nuclear weapons into Belarus? Understanding if the Russians will continue their control completely over these weapons, but where are they and how are they being deployed there? Do you all have any idea? I don't have any insight into that. Rehor, I would be interested if you did. Well, I have no idea because I guess that there are not so many components of these nuclear weapons uh, in Belarus. And frankly speaking, I have no idea how it's going to work because actually Russia has two military facilities in Belarus, right. but they are not actually their bases and they are not prepared for hosting nuclear weapons there. Uh, so, so in practice, it means that Russia is supposed to have their nuclear weapons in Belarusian military facility, but I'm not sure how it's going to work uh, because they say that Russians say that they will control the, the weapons and they will not give any access or to Lukashenko or to Belarusian army, etc. So it's still a huge question that how it's going to work. And I think, and I actually agree with what Brian said, that actually, in a way, it's about just raising the issue because Putin and uh, Lukashenko as well know that actually nukes are very important for the West and they many people wake up. Actually, an old friend of mine, he was a journalist like 35 years ago and he was the, the journalist 
in the beginning of the 90s when Belarus was a still new host of the nuclear weapons. And he remembered that actually many Western diplomats were just sleeping during the hearings in the Belarusian par parliament. But when they hear the word nuclear weapon, they all of them just wake up and, you know, start working, writing, etc., listening. And they understand, Dukshanka said as well, this is the way how they can raise the, the stake, raise, you know, the, that, that actually make everyone understand that, well, that you cannot intimidate Lukashenko. And this is what they would like to achieve, that actually his willingness to host these nuclear weapons is that he knows that this is his way to actually to guarantee his own security. I think, I mean, we also have to bear in mind, these are tactical battlefield nuclear weapons. We're not right. talking about strategic nuclear weapons. We're not even talking about intermediate range nuclear weapons. We're talking about tactical battlefield nuclear weapons, which again, I, I'm willing to be like corrected on this because I'm not a military analyst, but just logically thinking about it, you're what, 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 what advantage does that give Russia? I mean, if they wanted to hit Europe, they could hit it from Kaliningrad. And if they wanted to hit Ukraine, they could hit it from Russia. So, like, I don't really see what point there is in putting tactical battlefield nuclear. If we're putting strategic nuclear weapons or intermediate, that that would be that would be a totally different matter. But tactical battlefield nuclear weapons in Belarus, I just don't see any tactical or strategic advantage to that. So it's a it's a good chance they're not even there yet. They're well, this there. is the other thing. Yeah, we're going on what they're saying. Um, yeah. And when when looking at this part of the world, in particular, leaders like Lukashenko and Putin, I say, watch what they do, not what they say. Yeah. And it's yeah. And it's, so there's probably some NSA and other uh, analysts in Washington who would say, look, we haven't seen anything move. Yeah. Uh, oh, so that's a lot of talk. Yeah, maybe. Jim, I was going to try to end on the happy note where Brian was on why Ukraine policy is so important for our Belarusian policy, but then you drug us back into nuclear weapons. But so maybe we'll try to end on the on the on the optimistic note that Brian was was leaving us. And just to add my own anecdote, so they had the three um, Nobel Peace Prize, the kind of co-laureates here in Washington D.C. last week, and I had the great opportunity to do a dinner with the three of them. And it was the point that the activist from Belarus made, which was how important Ukraine is for Belarusian society and the way that Ukraine has long served as a model of what Belarus could look like in the future. And so again, for you know, we know the myriad of reasons why it's so important that Ukraine wins and defeats Russia, but it's important for the region. And I yeah. think, Brian, it is such an important point you made. So I just wanted to end on something more optimistic <laughs> than nuclear <laughs> Good. Despite appearances to the contrary, I am an optimist by nature. So. Well, yeah, thank you both. I think yeah. this was a fantastic discussion, and I think you rightly put right. We're rightly putting the focus back on Belarus um, to, in the way that it probably should be, and so I really appreciate you catching many of us up to speed on what's happening there. And 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 great, probably a little bit of a frustrating podcast because there are so many questions, and so maybe as things become more clear about what's happening with Wagner and other things, maybe we'll have you all back on. And, and but it's helpful to know what you guys are focused yeah. on and thinking about. So I appreciate it. Yeah, and we'd be we'd love to have you and Jim back on the power vertical, Andrew. Andrew. We'll we'll <laughs> all right. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the transatlantic security team at the Center for a New American Security. 
You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.